0: You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Well,
1: Good, good evening, everyone, and welcome to our International Women's Day event. I'm uh, Sara Pantuliano, one of the managing directors here at ODI, and I'm really Delighted to, you know, welcome you to our um, IWD debate. I mean, International Women's Day is a a global day to celebrate the social, the economic, the cultural, the political achievements of women. And I think we have made tremendous progress in many different areas, in many different contexts. But I'd say that the progress has been slow, a time painful. And in many parts of the world, continues to be a constant struggle. Even where the progress has been more marked, perhaps in the Western world, actually, I think we're witnessing a backlash against the gains that, you know, as women, we have made. Um, that is quite um, ferocious. The gains we've made are fragile. I think they must be protected. We can't take them for granted. If you look what's happening around us, you know, women and girls around the world continue to experience very high levels of physical and sexual violence. I find that male politicians are obsessed with controlling women's sexual behavior and try to confine us to reproductive roles. And as we know, women continue to be grossly underrepresented in leadership roles, in government, in business, in the media, and those who actually do Know, take those roles, are very frequently subjected to sexism, to prejudice, or they're publicly undermined just for being female. We actually, I think, in a time where there is a more, you know, uh, a, actually a, a broader push against fundamental civil rights, not just women's rights, um, and it is disconcerting to see the level and the depth of the attacks on those who are trying to really defend basic human rights. So we must fight back! <laughs> and that's precisely why we decided to have this debate tonight. Um, and that's why at ODI we do the work that we do um, on, uh, um, on you know, trying to promote women's rights. Let me just give you two minutes you know, of a flavour of the work that goes on in the Institute on these issues. We have a stellar program of work to examine um, how discriminatory gender norms uh, affect the lives of women and girls, and how we can work with men and boys and institutions and communities to try and affect change. We're just starting an eight-year program, a longitudinal research, that really explores how we can transform the lives of adolescent girls. This week we're launching a consultation to launch uh, to, to start a digital platform um, that looks at gender norms on adolescent girls. And the idea is to really make you know very rich information available to policymakers, to academics, to practitioners that shows how we can change discriminatory behavior at all levels. We're working with UN women to try and find ways to improve access to domestic violence um, in India and in Uganda. And we continue to ramp up our work on women's economic empowerment. We're working very closely with the UN High-Level Panel on Women's Economic Empowerment. I don't know if um, some of you may have seen in you know, a report that we launched in December on you know, um, research on domestic work in the emerging gig economy. Uh, and we're continuing work on this agenda. And finally, last but not least, we've been analysing violence against women and girls, specifically to understand the perpetration of violence by male partners. Um, we just launched a report today. You'll find a copy outside if you, you know, interested. Um, that really shows that you know while there are some positive changes, community-level changes um, through access to new technologies, there is also a sign of backlash in a number of countries, particularly in Bangladesh and in Pakistan, where you know. Part- religious forces, but not just them, are actually championing you know, entrenched patriarchal and often violent social norms. But that's enough for what ODI does, let's move to the debate, and let me introduce with enormous pleasure Serena Kuczynski, who is going to moderate our debate today. Um, Serena is working with uh, the voluntary service overseas to uh, launch a new magazine, but she has more than a decade of experience in digital media, has worked with many outlets, Sunday Times, New Statements, Newsweek, Time Out London, you name it. She's a first class editor. She writes on politics, on culture, on lifestyle. But you know, she's also a very experienced public speaker, contributing very regularly to BBC Radio and sharing talks and debates like tonight. So we are absolutely <laughs> delighted and grateful that you have accepted our invitation to moderate our debate tonight, Serena. Over to you.
0: Thank you so much, Sarah. Well welcome everybody to today's uh, ODI International Women's Day debate where we will be discussing as Sarah laid out how we go about fighting this backlash against women on a global scale. I'm Serena Kaczynski as Sarah very kindly um, said and I'm delighted to be here and chairing this event because I think it provides an important opportunity to think about what feminism means and hopefully to refocus the feminist cause on the challenges that women face around the world, and maybe slightly away from the seemingly endless question of whether or not Emma Watson has the right to call herself a feminist after revealing nearly all in the pages of Vanity Fair. I mean, is this really what column inches uh, should be devoted to at a time of political turbulence when progress for women appears to be in reverse? To borrow a phrase from the tennis legend, John McEnroe, but the words that came into my head about this were, you cannot be serious. (laughs) Why are we not talking about the fact that women and girls around the world still experience high levels of physical and sexual violence, undergo female genital mutilation, and high numbers are forced into marriage? that women are still underrepresented in leadership roles and those who are in public life are frequently subjected to sexism and prejudice. And that President Trump's reinstatement of the global gag rule has blocked women in the poorest parts of the world from accessing safe abortions and contraceptions. So, is the backlash against women growing and is it a truly global phenomenon? How should the world respond... And what will it really take for women around the world to achieve true equality? Those are just some of the ideas that we'll be touching on today. I will first be putting a question to each of our speakers, two of whom are joining us by video link. You can tweet during the debate using the hashtag IWD2017, 2017, please do. Um, and if you're joining us online, welcome. You can send through questions uh, through the internet at any point and I will receive them on this iPad in front of me. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome our expert panel. There's Charlotte Bunch, a global feminist and human rights activist and who is currently the founding director of the Centre for Women's Global Leadership at Rutgers University. Irene Kahn, the Director General of the International Development Law Organization Greta Shetler, who's joining us from Washington, also on the video link, who is the vice president of WE Connect International. And on my left, Mariam Jamet, a digital entrepreneur and the co-founder of Africa Gathering. So I'd like to start by hearing from Charlotte, um, if she can hear me and she's ready to go. Um, Charlotte has been an activist, writer, and organizer in the feminist and human rights movement for over four decades. Charlotte, with your vast experience of feminism and human rights movements, is there anything new that you see in the backlash against women today, their rights and participation in public life? Or have you seen it all already? Are we all getting a bit overly scaremongery about this? What's your view?
2: Well, thank you. First of all, uh, I just want to thank the organizers for this uh, really important discussion. I would say that it's both and. There are certain continuities that you can look at over time in backlash against women's rights, but there are also always new elements um, that have to do with the particularities of the time we're in. I don't think it's at all an overreaction uh, to look at what's new as well as what's continuous. The continuities show us uh, the ways in which the advance of women has been a threat to uh, what I would call patriarchal power, uh, to those who would like to keep uh, old systems in place. But the discontinuities of the new things show us what the particular things are at this moment. Some of those are really a result even of the organizing that women has done. So I think we are seeing a particularly intense backlash uh, against women, but also against a kind of new order that has brought more diversity to the world Uh, that is a backlash against women in particular, but also against uh, the global migrations of the world, the ways in which certainly in the United States, uh, we are seeing a country uh, that is growing more diverse in terms of people of color and in terms of women beginning to uh, be in situations of power. And after all, this backlash came at a moment when Hillary Clinton was ascending to the presidency. And if we had a popular election by the popular vote would be the president. Uh, So I think that there is an intensity that goes with the degree to which women have actually broken through many barriers. uh, And the resistance to that, uh, in my view, is continuous with resistance we saw in the United States in the 1980s with Ronald Reagan or even with Nixon or before that. But it is also uh, somewhat different because it's tied to different patterns uh, of issues that are happening in any given moment. So to think about the U.S., and I want to go back to something you said in the beginning, at the core of the resistance to women's rights is, of course, a resistance to women playing a different role in the world, Uh, and that is happening in varying degrees. Uh, I think one of the real challenges we have is that for many of us, and I would include myself, we have moved into new positions of of power and new ways of living and families and diversity. But for many, many women, they are paying the price of that because they're being held back precisely by the forces who don't want this new feminism to succeed. So I would say that one of our challenges in this backlash is the division that it's creating amongst women, Uh, the degree to which women ourselves are now being pitted against each other in this this process. Um, But at the core of all of that have been, I think, two key questions. One is the control of women's bodies. And you mentioned sexual violence. We often have to remember that all forms of violence against women are essentially about controlling what women do. Uh, The reaction to women, the violence against women, whether it's wartime violence where you rape the women who are the property of the enemy, as a means of keeping women in their place and reminding the enemy that you have power over them, or it's battery in the home, or it's honor killings or other forms of femicide where the family or the lover or the partner wants to control the sexuality of the woman or be sure she doesn't step out of, of the expected obedience to him. We have many different variations today. We've made progress in naming them. But that doesn't mean that they have yet uh, diminished. In fact, I would say at times we've seen as women's power increasing, at a certain moment some violence against them increases because the power that they are taking, whether it's in a development project uh, or in a political situation, there's new studies now about women in politics and the, if not overt violence, the subtle violence, the threats they face. Um, so I think that, that we do have a continuity of the issues of controlling women's bodies. It's not an accident that reproductive rights is always at the center of this. Um, from the founding of Planned Parenthood in the U.S. in 1916 uh, to now 100 years later, the Planned Parenthood, just the core idea that women control their own reproductive life, Uh, continues to be under attack. So that's a continuity. The forms of it, of course, are very different. We're not seeing primarily objection to contraceptives to the extent that we did 100 years ago, but we're certainly seeing objection to right to abortion, to the right of women to have sex in or out of marriage, uh, to a whole range of things that have to do with control of one's body. I think in terms of politics, You mentioned, to me, one of the most effective tools is ridicule. It's very interesting, again, in the U.S. context, there are some comparisons today to the ridicule that Kellyanne Conway is is getting as a woman in the Trump administration to what Hillary Clinton got, which is to say the sexism and the use of sexuality to ridicule women even crosses party lines. Uh, And I think that we have to look at, you know, how can it be that, Today, even in progressive circles, it still seems to be okay to make fun of women in politics using sexist language, sexist allusions. Um, The second thing that's a certain continuity for me, if you look at the situation, globally is that there's always an intimate link between sexism and racism. Oh,
0: Charlotte, sorry, I, I thank you so much for your contribution. I, I uh, need to move on to the next speaker, so if you're able oh, to sorry. just conclude. No, no, it's all fascinating. I just need to make sure there's enough time for everyone.
2: Okay, well, let me just conclude by saying I think one of the new uh, factors today is not racism. There's been a debate, uh, certainly, of sexism and racism have always been linked but the way in which the issues of women are linked today to the fear, I think, of the diversity of populations uh, and the linkage to genuine distress about globalization. And maybe that's where I want to end, that I think what we see is real economic problems that are affecting those who have been left out of globalization, whether that's um, in some of the uh, poor people in the United States or whether that's populations in other countries that have become mar- been further marginalized. And the most immediate reaction to that, which is control of women as a way of controlling those populations as well. And as people of color, as well as women have advanced in some situations, the fear of that um, has led people who feel left behind uh, to, pinpoint women as a problem, whether that was the Delhi rapes in 2014 or even the Montreal massacre in 1989 when an engineering student killed 14 women because they were taking what he saw as men's places uh, in the engineering school. So there is, I think, a particular intensity today because of the growth of inequity uh, and the displacement of globalization of populations which then become uh, they scapegoat the advancement of women and people of color as a way of trying to uh, get back what they had, and that has led to the kind of nationalist, uh, populist nationalist movements that we're facing. They had a different form in the 80s. I don't think it's quite the same. I think it's really important to see how globalization has actually given rise to a particularly virulent form of nationalist resistance and women are always at the core of that. So I'll stop for now. Thank you.
0: Great. Thank you so much, Charlotte. Um, We'll move on to Irene. Uh, Irene is a lawyer who served as the seventh secretary general of Amnesty International from 2001 to 2009. In 2004, she initiated a global campaign to stop violence against women. In 2009, she launched Amnesty's Demand Dignity campaign to fight human rights abuses that impoverish people and keep them poor. And in 2011, she was elected to her current role as Director General of the International Development Law Organization in Rome. Irene, there's probably not a country in the world that doesn't pay homage to the rhetoric of gender equality, but there are very few that actually manage to carry that through into social, cultural uh, and uh, into a reality. What examples have you seen in your extensive work in this area that can give us some idea how we should go about shaping our fight back against this backlash?
3: Thank you for inviting me to this event. And let me start first by greeting everyone on International Women's Day, although <laughs> I think every day mm-hmm. is Women's Day. Um, now, oh. what have I learned? Well, I would say, well, five, let me give you five lessons, five minutes, I hope. Um, one Lesson number one, don't get taken in by the rhetoric, look at the reality. And I think in this age of uh, alternative facts, And uh, sitting here in ODI, which is a research institute and therefore uh, data-based, I think it's very important to look at data, Uh, clear data, which shows that a lot of progress has been made, but which also shows that a lot more needs to be done. And when you look at that data, there are some killer facts that in this day and age, 35% of women are victims of uh, gender-based or sexual violence. That's a terrible statistic. If you look at this room, very successful women here. But if I asked one in three of you to stand up, that would be as many as are victims of uh, gender-based violence. Um, But there are also other rather interesting facts. I don't know how many of you know that the International Court of Justice, which has been around for 72 years, the highest court globally, has had 106 judges appointed in 72 years, of whom only four have been women. Now I'm a lawyer, I'm a jurist, and therefore that statistics tells me a lot about how far we have to go in treating women equally. Uh, Lesson number two, for women, human rights matter. Not only that, all human rights matter, civil, political, human rights, as well as economic, social, and cultural. Women need political and civil rights for voice, for agency, for space to organize. But they need economic, social, and cultural rights. The right to health, to education, to housing, to jobs, to social security. And I emphasize them as rights, not needs. And I think it's important to put them as rights. Uh, Charlotte was talking about the US. Think of what's happening there in the context of uh, the health um, legislation. Unless these are seen as rights that women can claim, uh, then I think women lose out a, a lot. And therefore, this universal, comprehensive approach to human rights is extremely important for women. Lesson number three, discrimination has to be fought, but just passing laws is not enough. One has to go behind laws to look at institutions to see whether those laws are being implemented properly, whether policies, proper policies are being put in place, what's actually happening. And there we will see that those very institutions, the ones with which I work most, courts, uh, legal systems, prosecution systems, those are the ones which are supposed to protect women. And very often, they actually fail women. Now, how to make them work is an enormous challenge, uh, because women need to be able to access justice. And, That means, for instance, in Afghanistan, my organization is setting up um, prosecution units to deal with gender-based violence in the attorney general's office, 20 such units across the country, training investigators, prosecutors, and judges to understand what rape is. How do you define rape in Afghanistan, which does not have a concept of uh, rape in many, many situations, or sexual assault? How do you protect women's rights in real ways? Lesson... The other lesson alongside this, of course, is that many women don't get to courts. They don't have access. They're actually living living in communities. So lesson number four is don't underestimate the male-dominated community structures. And when we deal, those of us who are in the business of reform and change, when we are dealing with reform, we need to be extremely careful that we don't entrench those existing power structures in the name of uh, creating uh, laws or uh, changing institutions. And very often, that's what's happened. How do you work from inside communities? How do you empower women? uh, And change the power structure that Charlotte was talking about, that is absolutely critical. And there are many uh, examples that I can give later uh, in the course of the discussion today. Uh, Lesson number five, I would say, is the legal empowerment of women. Women are not victims their survivors, and their agents. I worked for the UN High Commissioner for Refugees for 21 years. And in that time, I didn't see women, refugees, in the way in which they're so often depicted, I think, publicly. Um, It's easy to raise money if you make women look poor and hungry and and battered uh, women. But the women that I saw in the refugee camps, and I, I remember one image sticks in my mind, and I was mentioning it earlier today, Uh, When I was with the UNHCR emergency team on the border border of Bangladesh in the mid-'90s, receiving refugees who were crossing the river from Burma, from Myanmar, into Bangladesh, families would come across, very tired women, men, children. They would sit down under the tree, hot, sticky, humid climate. The men would flop down and immediately either go to sleep or, or stretch themselves out in the grass. The women would pick themselves up, look around, open their little bundles pull out a pot, go look for firewood, put put the fire together, start looking for food, because they had to cook. They had to take care of the children. They had to rebuild the family structure that had been destroyed in flight. That I saw as the resilience women, and that is what we who are in this business of, of development and human rights seek to do, is to empower and bring out that strength that women have—it's—it's—it's uh, it's, it's simply to facilitate that, and there are many, many examples of how that is being done uh, uh, by many organizations. The collective—and when women put that power collectively together—that's when we see huge changes happening. For example, uh, recently, as you know, in Poland, when thousands of women took to the streets and actually were able to uh, change uh, the, the draft uh, legislation that was rejected.
0: That was on abortion, wasn't it? Exactly.
3: And it was women's power. So women individually as well as collectively. The power of women is very important. And my last lesson that I draw from all this is about men and boys. They have to be there with us. And I would have loved to have seen more men in this room. And I wonder why they are not there. It's easy to say men don't care. But I don't think that is all true. I remember when I launched Amnesty's campaign to stop violence against women the first person who put his hand up and said he wanted to be with me at the launch was the actor Patrick Stewart. And he came to the launch, and he talked about his own family situation, how his mother had been a victim of domestic violence, and how he, as a young boy, had seen that, and how whenever he played Othello, he thought of Desdemona as the woman uh, uh, there, Not, not Othello as the jealous man but as Desdemona, as, as the oppressed woman. And then I also remember, as part of the same campaign, I went to Australia to launch the campaign. And there we had uh, Amnesty had put this uh, image that you would have to dip your hand in a, a, pale, a bucket of paint and then put it on a banner to show your support for the campaign to stop violence against women. And when we put out that big white sheet on the stage, and there were hundreds of people there, and we said, who wants to come up on the stage and uh, you know, endorse it, endorse this campaign? The first person who ran across was a young man. He stuck his hand in there, put it in the banner, and he said, for my mother. So men are also sons, brothers, fathers. And men are in the struggle with us. And we women need to make space to bring in the men. Because if we want to win this battle, it's not a battle of exclusion. It is actually a strategy of inclusion, and including means bringing in men. And I think it's extremely important that today, yes, there is a backlash, but it's a different kind of backlash. And in this backlash, we need to have as many men, and I know that there are many of them out there, who want to be with us.
0: That's a very good call to arms, Irene. Uh, I'd like now to move to uh, Greta Shetler, who's joining us very kindly from Washington. Uh, Greta is the vice president of We Connect International, which does excellent work supporting and connecting women in business around the world. Um, Greta, I think uh, given your expertise, I thought it'd be really interesting to maybe dig into what the root causes of this backlash against women might be. Where do globalization, unemployment, the economy, educational advancement for women come in? And being aware of these challenges, how can we advance the cause of women's rights? And what role should work play in that?
4: Great. Thank you, Serena. Hopefully everyone can hear me. Um, I'm a very, first of all, thank you very much for, to the organizers for, for the event. Um, it's a great pleasure for me to be able to participate. It's something I've been working on for um, uh, throughout my career, both in my current position and as my former role, um, where I worked on uh, led our work at the U.S. government on U- uh, women's economic participation. So, what I
0: want. Oh, we've lost. We've lost the sound for Greta.
4: Can you, can you hear me now? We
0: can now. Yeah, we just lost you. Sorry. Okay.
4: Uh, sure. <laughs> Um, so what I, I always like to begin with is really look at all the, the achievements. And I think this is something that Charlotte um, and also Irene highlighted is that, you know, we've, we've made a lot of achievements over the past years. And um, for, for instance, we've closed uh, half of the gaps that re, um, are imp- impacting women's legal rights and property um, were closed between the years of 1960 to 2010. And there's always going to be pushback against change. And so I think it's important, and I think this, again, is something that Charlotte and Irene were mentioning, is just how collectively do we really bring people in from all different walks of life into that conversation and to make sure that everyone is well-educated and understand why the change is coming about. So I think it's really important first to recognize all of the, the great achievements that we've made. Um, from an economic perspective, Now, every single major economic forum highlights the importance of women's economic participation and gender equality and what that means to both economic growth and stability. The IMF has recognized that closing the gender gap and the labor force participation um, could raise the global GDP by 28 trillion by 2025, And the G20 leaders committed to reducing the gender labor force participation gap by 25% by 2025. So there are incredible gains that have been made, and I think that we're in a really exciting time period now um, to really look at how do we continue to leverage that work. So one of the things I think is important is that, as you potentially are seeing it as a backlash, what I've really um, experienced in a lot of my work is it's much more about education. And what you're getting to is more of a tipping point. You're starting to hear more voices rise to the table and people are starting to question and having to challenge things that have existed in their own sphere and in their culture for many years. And people are always hesitant and resistant to change. But what I'd love to be able to point out a little bit of Oh. And the opportunities, for example, like we the national. We connect is actually an alliance of uh, the largest multinational corporations.
0: Gre- Greta, Can so- you hear me? Uh yeah, sorry, we're having a few sound issues at our end. We have been mainly able to hear you. I think everyone here okay? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um please, and now you're back on the screen, so please carry on. It's really fascinating. <laughs>
4: Sure. So um, our members make up, um, there are 75 different corporate members um, that represent, they purchase a trillion dollars of goods and services every year from women owned businesses, uh, for, from companies. And only less than 1% of that actually comes from women. So companies recognize that it's important to have diverse supply chains. They recognize it's important to have SMEs and um, diversity throughout to ensure that there's innovation. So they are our members are committed to buying from women, not because they they want to buy from women and they think it's a human right, but ultimately for them, in their case, it's about innovation. It's about um, the 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 business case for them it's about economic growth and stability and so it's really important for them that they look at how they are incorporating women into that supply chain and into the their, their diversity within the organization and i want to highlight this because what i often find going back to irene's comment i don't even have to i can't see the room but i can tell you in all the conversations that i've had globally is generally it's about 95% women, 5% men. And often when I've done my work both within the private sector as well as with the government, women do, men do want to be engaged, but they don't understand necessarily what their role is. And that often they feel that they might not have a place at the table because they feel this is a discussion being, being led by women only for women. And what I found and what I love to do, and my favorite part about my job, is that aha moment. It's about putting yourself in the other stakeholders' um, shoes. What is their area of expertise? What is their, for example, if it's legal, if it's about justice, if it's about climate change, if it's about economic growth? Start where they're starting and ask them what are their priorities and their goals and what are they trying to achieve? And as you understand and you listen to and you and you work that that knowledge and that exchange of knowledge between each of the different stakeholders, then you're able to meet them and say, exactly, and this is where it's important that women are a part of that discussion, or women have an equal seat at the table, or you know, if if for example, if it's climate change, that women are often the most affected by that. So you have to kind of reverse the conversation to look at how do you engage stakeholders that often feel marginalized or they don't understand what their role is in this particular conversation, even if it's half the population, because they don't always necessarily know whether or not they have a role in that. So what I, I think is really exciting about the work that I've done both um, within uh, at the State Department as well now as We Connect International is I really get to see that change happen, and I, I think that what you are experiencing as a backlash is really more of a... Uh, you know, we're, we're seeing such a rise of, of prominent women, of voices, of um, activi- mm-hmm. activation, uh, uh, activism. And so people, what we need to do now is look at how are we going and drawing people into that conversation and how are we looking at um, understanding what their concerns are and then helping to ensure that we are educating and incorporating people into that discussion. And I'll, I'll just, um, before I stop there, one, one thing I wanted to highlight, too, is something I think um, Irene had mentioned, is that often we'll see a, between a correlation um, of a rise in gender-based violence with the rise in women's economic participation. That's usually over a three-year time frame. But what you find is if you start to integrate education programs at the beginning of any economic empowerment program for both the women and for men, and you talk about what are those rights, how does that relate to gender-based violence? how does this actually impact a society community, that you will see a decrease in that gender-based violence actually occur. So there's an initial um, threat that is to the, 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 the environment that everyone's used to, the empowerment of women, but then also looking at how do you both ensure that women as well as men are aware of, Uh, you know, why it's good and how to basically address any type of um, issues that they might be dealing with. So I think it's really about making sure that we have a comprehensive strategy and how do we engage with all different stakeholders as we're um, uh, looking to advance women's economic and empowerment at large.
0: That's great, Greta. Thank you. Uh, nice to hear a, a more positive uh, perspective on on the discussion. Actually, um, yeah, we'll come back to that. But, but thank you for your interesting points. Um, I'd like to uh, turn to Mariam Jemena, now. Um, Senegalese-born digital entrepreneur and co-founder of Africa Gathering, a platform for those that if you don't know, enables businesses, governments, investors and entrepreneurs to share ideas about Africa for positive change. Uh, Mariam's latest venture includes the launch of I Am The Code, and she says her goal, uh, not a modest one, but uh, good to aim high, is to empower a million young women and girls globally to become coders by 2030. Mariam, you have a hugely inspiring personal story yourself, um, which has prompted you to work tirelessly for women's empowerment. Uh, what are the ingredients to making a tangible positive dis- difference in the lives of women and girls around the world? And who are the allies that you think we need to work with to deliver this change?
5: Great. Thanks Charlotte. I, f- I think that's a very good, uh, that's a very good question and, and thank you for having me here. Uh, and I'm sorry I was, uh, I was late. I think one of the things I've I've been learning from Irene and and Charlotte and and Greta is that uh, there's one thing that is missing really, and I think we need to moving forward. uh, We need to think about transactions and and how we transacting between uh, you know amongst each other. And usually transactions are more financial, but I think now we need to think really how we transact between us as human beings, but also. You know, between agencies uh, and, and supporting women and girls globally, and I think the backlash I see—the backlash is not only for Africa. I used to think five, ten years ago, you know, the backlash was very, very African-focused, but now I think it's a global. Uh, it's really global. It's for everyone, from uh, Afghanistan to. Argentina you see uh, you know massive issues uh, you know for for women and girls and and I think the, the, the I'll go back to the transaction I think many for many many years we've been talking about you know empowering women and girls uh, you know gender equality a lot of funding have been going through, you know from human rights issues to so many programs out there, but until now we haven't found the you know the key ingredients of what can we do together as as organizations. And I think that if we start thinking about transactions that could lead to transformation, uh, I think that that would be uh, something uh, you know amazing. And and that I can illustrate that on uh, you know I have a couple of slides, but I don't know if I can show that. But uh, but it's it's really. Um, you know, we don't have enough time, but I think, I think if you really think about uh, women and girls, let's say just Leticia in Uganda, and, and for the last you know, five, ten years, you know, people have been investing in Uganda, in Senegal, in many, many places around the world. But today you see Leticia who's 11 years old. Think about Leticia when she's 25 years old, and by 2030 she'll be 25. You know, are we going to continue this, this, this way of empowering her or... Can we change our way of working with her and I think what I'm trying to to bring into people's mind is to find to start thinking about transactions how you know <coughs> NGOs are transacting with government how the private sector is transacting with uh, you know practitioners like us on the ground and 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 especially in the new in new era of technology, how do you make sure that you know women are part of this conversation and and I think we all go in, in different directions. I'm totally optimistic, but I think you know, what I said earlier is that the women have rights. But unless someone actually trigger these rights or actually even talk about the rights, and you go to Afghanistan and when you come back to the UK, you come back to where I live in the southeast of England in Guildford, you start thinking about, are we really doing the right thing for everyone? Uh, you know, you see some women in Guildford who are digitally illiterate, but we, the UK is a very wealthy country. And and you go to Afghanistan, women are actually coding four languages. You go to Senegal, they're coding two, three languages. And you go to Burkina Faso, they are entrepreneurs in agriculture. So I think, you know, as we so the backlash, as we're creating the backlash ourselves, or you know, is it is it any way we can start thinking about working together, you know, in a more empathetic way, as Greta said earlier. Can we create this way of creating empathy in the whole Uh, you know structure of our work and I think uh, those are the kind of thing I really would like to bring on the table and I think my last point really is that we need to also start thinking about a collective metrics of success at the moment I don't see really big successes of gender equality of how we empowering women and girls Uh, from Senegal uh, in my my own country to to Nigeria you know everything is like hype you know small things happening and then the next year we forgot about it like today you know I've been to five events <laughs> since this morning, and it's the same conversation, I've been speaking it's like same conversation same and then next year we're gonna do the same thing again and, and, you know and it's all the time the same thing and you you just who speaks the loudest we We, we just hear that person or who got the 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 person they have the amazing websites or amazing I- infographs we just hear we just listen to those people, but we actually don't listen to the people on the ground the grassroots ladies here how can you make sure ladies here can code? two languages, by 2030, or four or five languages, get a digital job, work for Twitter or Facebook, become a digital entrepreneur, have got a job, become empowered, understand her rights, uh, be safe, how can we do that? And I think that the only way we can do that is start thinking of the way we transact amongst each other.
0: That's great, thank you very much, Miriam. Hopefully, hopefully, next year's conversation will have moved on, moved on slightly. But um, but thank you for putting in such a good effort after so many um, conversations. I'd just like to go back to Charlotte um, and to if she can, if she, can she hear me, um, and to talk about. You talked a lot about this, the fact that women are being scapegoated, but you also made the distinction with the. Eighties and and also feel free to drop to chime in both of you on and, and Greta. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the concrete steps that we can take to ensure that women's rights don't suffer from this from this scapegoating from this setback? Basically, what can we actually? You know, as you said, we all sit here and talk about it, but what can we actually do?
2: Yeah, eighties, which is. Yeah. Um, I think today we have a much clearer understanding of what I would call the human rights perspective that Irene was talking about, that all issues are interrelated, or what we call the intersectional feminist perspective, that sees that the relationship between the sexism and the racism and the scapegoating of women and the scapegoating of immigrants in our society uh, and in Europe, certainly, uh, is all connected to two things in my mind that we we must deal with one is this problem of the growing inequity and marginalization of some people and i come back to that because i think that both women who are left out of this and the men who are left out by the global economy become the fodder for political battles Certainly, we've seen that with Trump and uh, with Brexit and some of the other developments. Now, how can we change that? Well, I think there are two things we have to do. In the immediate is the resistance uh, to that. And interestingly, in the United States today, I would say we're seeing the rebirth of the most intersectional movement we've had since probably the 1960s, uh, in the sense that Black Lives Matter, women's rights, immigrant rights groups, Um, LGBT groups are really coming together to say, we have to create a different culture in this society. And a part of that is political power. Um, So you have, instead of sort of single issue, you have a growing sense of intersectional politics um, and a real importance of something that I think Marie May was referring to, which is the grassroots of our power. Um, And that that grassroots also exists in the West. We sometimes talk about grassroots as if it were uh, only in the Global South, but the grassroots of the people in the United States or in European countries must be brought into seeing uh, a new world as in their benefit because those are the people who are being used, um, I think, by political forces to try to put all of this back. So to me, the first part is how we organize, and it goes with understanding the intersection between issues and the bigger process, which I don't have an answer to, but is really how we find ways to think about the changes that do need to happen in our global economic and political system. I am not against globalization, but I am against the way that we have allowed globalization to increase inequity. And I think that is so fundamental to the ways that backlash uh, is allowed to develop. So as we come together, and I do see both a human rights perspective, and I really want to reinforce what uh, Irene said about understanding these issues from a human rights perspective in the health debate in the US, as you referred to, we are in that moment of having almost achieved what many other countries have, the notion of health as a right, is being put back by the backlash and saying, no, it's not a right, it's a choice. Uh, That's a huge difference. Uh, Women's rights are rights. They are not just choices, they are fundamental. So if we can bring these human rights and intersectional movements together, challenging political power, but also taking on the question of what are the changes we need in our global economy? We do need changes. Uh, It's not against globalization, but we have to find a way that so many people, both countries that we are now discarding as you know, not crucial to the economy and people within each country, are feeling marginalized. And men and boys who are feeling marginalized are necessarily going to have, if they don't have a political movement to join, they're going to feel that somehow the women and the women particularly who have advanced are their enemies? Are the ones that have displaced them? So that's why I'm putting this emphasis on looking at, you know, what have we, what have we got to build at the grassroots to bring back the understanding of how we all fit in the whole? I see that starting to happen. I think, um I think that right,
0: Charlotte. Sorry to interrupt you. Uh, Mariam, I think has got a slide, but I think your, I mean, your insight into. The effects of globalization is something that we are all sort of coming to terms with. I think, you know, post Brexit, post Trump, we see the impact of it. And you're very right to bring it up. And thank you so much. Um, Are you able to show your slide? Yeah,
5: I think I think I agree. You know, the backlash, like Nelson Mandela said, you know, poverty is man-made, and the backlash is actually we made this, we designed this. We're sitting at ODI today, which is a data organization. You know, one of the most credible probably organization that shows data. But if you think about in the next, you know, let's say in the next fifteen years when we sit in, in twenty thirty, I don't know to twenty thirty. I'm trying to show. So <laughs> yes, in the you know, technology oh, might oh, be I better in twenty thirty. This way, or this way. Am I clicking? Okay. Oh, here so, we go. So let's say in the next, in a, if we can avoid the bas- backlash. So This is Latisha sitting in Uganda today, and and uh, Latisha is is coding right now in in Kampala, and you, you have we have around. No, 4,000 girls right now across Africa and using our technology to, to code. And so the backlash, we created this because we can't think that ladies here, sitting in Uganda, can today code. And so when I talked about the transaction and how can we measure our collective metrics of success, it's, it's giving an opportunity to this young woman who's going to be 25 years old in 2030. And so my argument was, how many women and girls coders will we have in 2030? And so all these organizations are not even thinking about that. So how can we make sure they understand the human rights? So a girl sitting in Afghanistan today, as Irene said, or Senegal, or Burkina Faso, or Mali, how can we make sure those girls are are involved in that? And so one of the things we've been focusing on, and this is exactly an ambitious goal, but I think one of the things we're trying to do is to, to get into the sustainable development goals to make sure that they have a voice on the sustainable development goals because we can track our goals, we can track our work, and we can have a collective metric of success from human rights to getting a, wo- a girl coding four languages by 2030 by all of us working and transacting in a different way by focusing on the sustainable development goals. I just wanted to show you a couple of slides and these are the goals across Africa right now mm. focused on the sustainable development goals. That's great. Thank you very yeah. much. Um, I'll come back to that in a second. Oh, round of
0: applause. Uh, Irene, uh, just to get, I really enjoyed your yeah. um, feminist manifesto. Um, and you, t- you raised the very important point about men. But uh, Greta touched on this as well. I mean, what role can men actually play? I mean, how should men be walking around, you know, like Ed Miliband and David Cameron with those cringy T-shirts saying, I'm a feminist, guys? Uh, you know, what, what, what onus is on men? Uh, well, you, you know, today is International Women's Day. But what we are talking about is
3: gender equality. Mm. It's not about women. It's about men and women. That's what gender is about. And that is what, you know, obviously it's a perfect world we're dreaming about, but that's what we have to strive for. That if if we do it as only a women's issue, we will never succeed. Just as men, I don't believe, are succeeding simply uh, by grabbing male power. And there's a lot of power grabbing going on and has happened, but it's not sustainable. The men know it, which is why the so-called backlash that we are talking about. Uh, So I think it's extremely important to keep the gender perspective on. There is also the issue of the feminist agenda. We now know that there are at least two countries in the world that have declared feminist foreign policies. Um, Governments, there was a time, I remember, not so long ago, um, maybe 10, 15 years ago, you didn't hear the word feminism so much. It's come back into fashion now. We're all very proud, as you say, yeah. to put on these feminist T-shirts. But feminism, we have to be careful mm. that it's not hijacked, that it is a value. It has to be earned. It should be an award, uh, not a, a, a label. Sort and of, yeah, if with you the earn it, stuff, exactly. if you want to earn it, then there are certain things you have to do. And one is to prove that you believe and you strive for gender equality. And there are things that you can do. If you're the head of an institute, you can see how many people you hire and how you hire them. And do you have a balanced agenda? I'm a head of an organization. There's something I can do. If you are a politician, it's the policies that you promote. I think at the end of the day, we all want the same things. We want human rights. We want peace. We want human development. But it's how you approach that so that you uh, have an inclusive society at the end rather than one where there is inequality and inequity, I wanted to say one word about globalization and the impact of globalization. Yes. And I very much liked what Mariam talked about the coders in Senegal. But there are changes that are actually happening now or have, have already happened. I come from Bangladesh. Uh, in my country, the garment industry has probably done more for the empowerment of women and for women's human rights, ironically, than any development program by giving, giving women jobs, giving women a sense of worth, terrible conditions, yes we have health and safety issues and of course you've heard all those terrible stories about factories collapsing and walls falling down and the pitiful wages that they get. But it's important to remember that for those women they would rather have those wages, wages in those factories than go back to rural oppression uh, in their villages. So I think we need to see this as a, a situation of transition. How do we keep the journey going in the positive direction and not uh, and i think mm. that there 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 are there is the dark side of globalization but there are also many positive things that have also happened, and we have to be careful about what we keep and what we let go. Uh,
0: yeah, I think. I yeah. mean, it's. I think uh, what Charlotte was sort of saying mm. is that it's very much a learning process, and we've sort of just had a big wake-up call to the to the negative side. I thought it was very interesting what you were saying about feminism being hijacked. I mean, even Donald Trump, right, says that he's a feminist. Does anyone in this room think that Donald Trump is actually? A feminist? No, no one. Okay, just well, wanted to. He's,
3: he's uh, into uh, <laughs> you know what he calls uh, fake news. Yeah. <laughs> fake, fake feminism.
0: Um, just uh, as a quick aside, I'm just going to go to Greta quickly. Um, Greta, you you had a very interesting theory about the um, you know that this is a tipping point and this is sort of a positive thing in some ways. It's not a backlash, but the problem is how do we diffuse? Uh, the threat, you know, the back, the sense of backlash, if men are reacting to a perceived threat, even if it's not a real threat, but they still feel threatened by women's success. How do we go about diffusing that?
4: Sure. Um, hopefully you'll be able to hear me. Yeah, um, we I'm, can hear I'm you. getting a little, okay, breakup from on your side. Um, so, you know, it, it's a, it's a challenge. Um, nothing is, is easy. And I think you know, one of the things that we've seen in our work is that you do need to have um, buy-in and support from, from leadership, whichever organization it, uh, it, it is. Um, you need to look at how that leadership is um, putting weight behind messaging and providing policy guidance. Um, there needs to be examples of what that policy guidance translates to whether it's in the workplace um in a city in and in in the field there needs to be resources that are put behind that to make sure that um, efforts that are again messaged actually have the funding behind it to move forward there needs to be incentives and kpis because again people don't have a lot of things that they need to do they need to be incentivized or looked at how they will be measured, where are they currently standing and where are we trying to go? Um, there, you need to celebrate success. Um, it's really hard work to make any change. And I think it's important that people see, you know, again, you're, you're, you're showing examples from all different areas. Um, you know, one great one is, is the success story of, of Tostan and Senegal. Um, of how they were really looking at the rights-based approach and brought the community leaders in to address, um, to address and change and get their buy-in um, as it relates to FGM. Um, and then you need to look at how, um, as I think was mentioned several times, is that you know you're not leaving any stakeholders behind, um, and that people are really uh, are engaged in the conversation. And so. What, what you see is it, it, it is a lot of different steps, but it's very hard to make any cultural change or any change management for whether it's organization or city. It, it takes a lot of um, effort and it needs to be thought through in a holistic manner. And um, I would mention just two other examples that are really exciting to look at. Um, one is the Sodexo uh, model, um, the CEO uh, of Sedexo, and the work that he did to champion change within his company and the second one is an organization called Man Up that really looks at how uh, you can engage uh, young boys and men on what their role is in fighting gender-based violence and also being a partner in addressing a lot of issues. So I think it's about making space um, for and, and recognizing um, the issues that exist and then putting in a, a committed action plan about how you'll address that one. And maybe what I'll do just to, to end on uh, is to give a little bit of insight on the CEDEXO one is that the CEO had heard a lot about um, the importance of, of women and women's leadership and the performance that relates to a company. And so he said, you know, OK, we're going to do some analysis of our own company and see what that looks like. So they went um, division okay. by division and they looked. At, so, can you hear me?
0: Yeah, we can hear you. <laughs>
4: Okay, So they went division by division and they saw which teams were performing the best. And in reality, it was those that had better gender balance. So he said, great, what we're going to do is we are going to ensure that we are putting women forward, we're moving women to leadership positions, we're making that effort. He said this to the executive board. In the room, one gentleman said, oh, great, now I have more people to compete with. So not even recognizing, again, that there was an issue. There's just a natural bias. Sometimes there are these, uh, you know, know, everyone has these pieces. You need to bring the information to the table. You need to continue to look at how do you reinforce and move messaging forward and that you then back it up with actions that you put into place. And So that's what I would say is, going back to your question, this backlash is uh, understanding that change is coming about what is their role? What does it mean for everybody? How do we address that? And I think this is a time that we need to be really pulling together, as um, uh, Irene and, and Charlotte mentioned, is all these different organizations and men really looking at how do they take a role in being active and, and addressing the, the, um, any pushback in a holistic manner.
0: That's great. Greta, thank you so much. Um, I was just going to go to the audience, actually, because we're. Yes. we're yes. I uh, quite want to get right. questions from the floor in. Um, I'll take questions in groups of three, um, including from our online audience. And if you could say your name and your organisation and your question as briefly and uh, concisely as possible, that'd be great. Thank
6: you. Uh, lady here. Uh, my name's Jenny. <coughs> thank you. My name's Jenny Mitchell. Um, I'm a writer. Thank you very much for your contributions. Um, I wanted, and I might have been getting this wrong, but I seem to be hearing at the end, there was almost a kind of idea that women have to take care of how men feel about globalisation and about disenfranchised being disenfranchised but also can the backlash be seen as the sort of final violence of a white patriarchy that's actually losing its power great question thank you very much um
0: uh lady over here hi my name's nicola harford from iMedia, media and i work predominantly in media and communications for development so i wanted to ask the panel to
7: what extent do they think that the media sort of both local and and international is sort of helping to shape or even drive the backlash and to what extent can it be an ally in fighting against that backlash
0: mm-hmm. yeah um, one more lady here at the front
5: thanks
7: um Veronica Bell from Save the Children. A little bit on, along
5: this line, um, do you have example where actually um, education, education institution uh, have clearly demonstrate uh, having an impact against backlash and can be one of the actors to engage more um, systematically in the transactions uh, Marianne was talking about?
0: Okay, yeah, that's good. So. How do, Marianne, maybe you want to respond to
5: that one. Yes, I, I think I think that's um, that's a great question. One of the things I, I find also very problematic is that we're not thinking about system leadership. At, not only we, we're not thinking about them. but at the same time, the transaction is very biased. And so, let's say organisations who are who've been working with education for the last five, ten years, you know, the media is actually not even talking about them, or few of organisations talk about this organisation. And I think sometimes. We're not, do, you know, we're not doing uh, good service to the people on the ground uh, you know, in Africa or in Afghanistan or all these places. And so sometimes I think that you know, we, just, we just show what we want people to see. And this is very bad. And I think moving forward in the next five, 10 years, I don't know how the media will do this. And I think if you see Donald Trump, the reason why Donald Trump is actually uh, manipulating us is because he knows every time he says something, people go and jump. And I think this is what happened when when something is happening good in Africa or in Asia, the media don't show that. And I think and and they only they only show what the people want to see. And I, I do this and I write for many organizations sometime and I see that why don't why are you not talking about this this kind of thing? Why are you actually not writing about it? And and I think this is maybe the editor's role or whoever is doing this. But I think this, the systematic leadership also in in the media we need to work on that, and and avoid uh you know the bias of, uh, you know, this is why the backlash happens, because we're not demonstrating what's happening on the ground. Uh, and I think that my, my advice is to, to the media, you know, let's work with the people on the ground, the practitioners. We need to start showing, counting what's happening, but at the same time, uh, you know, evidence-based information rather than just fake news or what we want people to see.
0: Does anyone else on the panel have a response to that? Charlotte, yeah. we haven't got any sound Uh, oh Oh, yeah we've got you now i think can you have me now yeah we can do
2: thank you i want to respond to the first question in particular because Yes. yes i didn't use that language but i do think this is a backlash of the primal white patriarchy um i hope it's the final backlash but i don't think we know that yet and i think they're really critical questions if we do see this as a sort of backlash of a white world patriarchy losing its power, that doesn't necessarily mean that the most positive thing will emerge. Uh, It does mean that certain powers that have been controlling the white patriarchy, as you said, are losing their power, but the equally important question is what comes next? And so I think that this issue of men I struggle with exactly your thing, to what degree women have to take care of men. I I think about it politically, there is a strong emotional component to the kind of cultural change that seeking to end white patriarchy brings. And I think we have to speak to that emotional displacement and that factor, not because we have to take care of men, but because we want at least most men to see that they have a positive stake in a different future. We want them to see politically that this is a better future. And people who have had power, whether that's around race or around sex, don't give up power easily. None of us do. We have to be convinced that we are engaging in seeing something better for all of us emerging. And so to that extent, I see the issue of men and boys, and. Just to take the example that Irene gave, I was very worried about some of the strategies we had where we were going to the chiefs of villages, male chiefs, and getting them to speak out in favor of issues women cared about if we were reinforcing their power. But if the women of the village go to such a person and they change those power dynamics, I think it's a different strategy. So the question is not just taking care of men, but how do we get at least a significant number of men and boys who also want a different future for whatever reasons, and that's why the political alliances, I think, are so important, uh, where people can really have an emotional investment in this, instead of turning back, as all the various forms of fundamentalism and nationalism do, Mm. to an imagined ideal future where they were better off, which is usually an imaginary, uh, I'm I'm sorry, imagined past, Mm where they were better off, which is usually imaginary, but is what we know the backlash forces use uh, with that. So to me, it is a political task to address that emotional displacement and not just an individual taking care of men because we are engaged in, if it succeeds, a really major shift that is going on in world power.
0: Great, I think Irene wants
2: to Every time, time I, and I, I add something. just
0: wanted to
3: um, sort of nuance the notion of white male patriarchy. I don't think the Boko Haram are white. I don't think the ISIS are white. And if we have seen the most atrocious, the most horrendous forms of violence against women and girls, it has been from groups like that. In this day and age, bringing in medieval practices of sexual slavery, of abduction of girls, of forced marriage, I mean, you name it, we've seen that happen. So I think there is a a deeper issue here about crumbling states Mm. of, institutions unable to do the job that they are supposed to do to protect their citizens, men uh, and and women, women and men, girls and and boys. Uh, There there are norms that are being challenged and being thrown aside. Those norms were attacked uh, in the name of fighting terrorism, counter-terrorism. And now those norms are again under attack uh, by both uh, sides Uh, of of that debate, And, and I think we ought to be worried about the erosion of that international legal system that has been very, very carefully been created for more than 100 years, international humanitarian law. All that is going out, and what is going to come into that place is going to be very dangerous. So we have to see this, I think, in a broader issue than just men versus women. I'm sorry to say that is not just a simple issue, which I think, sometimes we women uh, tend to see it as black and white, is heavily nuanced because there are cultural yeah. dimensions uh, there. So that's uh, something that I think we need to keep in, in mind is institutions, how do we build inclusive, responsive institutions? Because that's uh, the way forward. You know? and, and, and it will vary because there are some very, very dark forces out there that, that are pushing back on this.
0: I think that's a very important um, point. Thank you, Irene. Um, Greta, I, would you be able to pick up on the question um, about the media, uh, which I think is very interesting? And to what extent is the media driving this backlash? And to what extent can they be an ally? Um, I hesitate to use the word fake news, because personally, as a journalist, I'm so fed up with it. But you know, it's important to touch upon what role, you know, news from the right and news from the left is sort of playing in this debate.
4: Sure. Well, I, you know, I think the media, it's, it's always challenging because I think Miriam was pointing this out, that a lot of what drives media, um, the stories are what's being consumed. And, um, you know, much of media, many media channels are actually businesses. So they're going to put out and continue to highlight stories that people are watching. So it is a lot on what is our role. But I'd also highlight that, you know, in, in doing a lot of work and research on where what women, women's role is in the media, is that I forget the exact statistics, but I wanna say something around 7% of op-eds that are uh, produced are actually written by women, yet 7% are actually submitted by women. So women aren't sharing their stories Mm -hmm. and they aren't putting it forward, and therefore it's directly reflected in the media. So again, it's important that we continue to write um, and put the stories Mm -hmm. out there about the success of women. Um, and how do you create that story and an engaging piece where people want to hear the success? Because I hear this, whether it's on women or any issue, um, media always gravitates towards the, the more, um, uh, the, the, I guess the, the terrifying story or whatnot. So I think the media, the piece is, is hard, mm. but how do you bring them into different conversations mm. that really look at an, an engaging story would be my, my answer on that piece. Um, on the education component as well. Oh, I think we've mentioned or said that we we're looking at for putting this more on women. I think it's really about men. Really, it's for both. I would, I would echo what Irene said and, and try to look at what's going to be coming down in the future. So. With the continual development of um, technology and innovation, there's going to be an increased loss of jobs as things mm-hmm. begin to become more productive. Um, so, for example, in the United States, one of the largest employers of, of men is, uh, is truck drivers. If that all of a sudden becomes a job that's eliminated, and <coughs> we're not looking at, again, how are we creating the next level of job that engages men, there will continue to be this dynamic of not being included, or what's my economic opportunity, which leaves um, uh, an opening for additional backlash. So I think it's important about how we look at the future, how we're educating both men and women, and bringing them into the discussion, and making sure that as we're educating uh, girls and women for the next generation of jobs, that we're also thinking about how we're providing those opportunities for for men as well. And then mm-hmm. just to the to the the education. What we've seen across the board on, on, on bias or on um, – it could be on on any particular issue. When you sit down and you really make people aware of what the particular issue is, and then you give them steps on how they can address it, you do see an, an, um, an impact in, um, in terms of making that change and that shift. So I know there was a particular question on, is there an example that you could give on where education really worked um, in terms of bringing – uh, making a cultural shift. So I know there are some uh, uh, some, oper- some examples in India um, and, and doing um, street plays with both young boys and girls on on, on how to uh, impact a gender-based violence. There's a number of different examples there. I think Irene maybe has mm. something she wants to pick up on too as so well. Uh,
0: thank you very much, Greta. I'm, I'm actually going to take some more questions from the floor. I think um, yes, the lady here.
6: Hello, I'm Kate Bird from ODI. Um, I would just like to come back to Irene on her um, comment about um, the backlash in crumbling states and sexual and gender-based violence in crumbling states. I absolutely mm. agree that there's the need to uh, build inclusive institutions, um, but I would I would challenge that it's only happening in crumbling states. I think that sexual and gender-based violence is endemic. Um, it is found all over the world, in all the countries that I've done... Uh, field work in looking at women's economic empowerment. Men use violence to try to control women and to try to determine what women do to contain their voice, to limit their agency and to limit the extent to which they're economic actors. Um, And I think the challenge for us is to identify how to push back against the backlash and ensure that women can maintain and forward their position as independent economic actors, what is the best way of doing that? And I think that's, that's, a, that's a really challenging question. Is it about structural change, <laughs> society-wide structural change, that changes the nature of the engagement, the nature of the debate, changing the constitution, changing laws, challenging customary norms, um, challenging patriarchy at its root, Or is it about individual targeted interventions to enable individual women to become educated, to gain access to a business, to access uh, financial resources, to grow that business, to employ people, to own assets, to be able to be free to sell those assets, to mortgage those assets, to be free to spend the money themselves in the way they choose? Okay, that's great. Um, we're going to take two more questions, yeah. but that, thank you for your
0: comment. That was great. Um, there's a gentleman at the back in a hat, a very nice hat. <laughs>
7: uh, I'd like to thank the panel for such an enlightening talk, and also I'd like to thank the Socialist Party for creating International's Women's Day to begin with, which I think is uh, a very important point. Uh,
0: I didn't get your name, sir. Uh, my
7: name's Dust.
0: Dust, okay, great. Yeah, cool.
7: Thank you. Uh, yeah, we live in a a world which is owned by the church and capitalism and I think that if we really want gender equality and human rights then this uh, subject must be brought up and tackled Uh, for example the Queen Elizabeth is one of the richest people in the world and uh, has never pushed women's rights or equal rights across the land that she owns across this world so I think that religion needs to be addressed and how they dominate Political institutions, institutions, and I think without this or, or this on the agenda, then there can't be that much progress made in the world of human rights. Thank you very much.
0: Okay, uh, thanks. That's great. Um, we'll we'll try and get a hotline to the Queen. I think. Um, next question as well. One more, uh, lady there with the blonde hair and glasses. Hi, my name is Isabel. I'm a student from the LSE. I just have a quick question for the panel on your opinion of using quotas to get more women into businesses. And is that going to hinder us once we're there because Mm. they're not on meritocracy, we're there for a quota, or is Mm. it actually a fantastic means to start getting women in the workplace until we come up with a better option? Or is there already a better option? Thank you. Yeah, important question. Thank you very much. Um, Okay, so I think, uh, Mariam, you wanted to respond to... um, the question about crumbling states, and maybe Irene, you want to come on that as well.
5: I also think the gentleman that just mentioned something about religion, I think mm. he's got a point. And if you see religion, for example, in, in, in Africa, where, where, you know, the part where every time I go and see something, and I think, I think that, especially churches, so now we, we're teaching uh, you know, women how to code in, in churches, and I think that uh, they're place of gathering, but I think also there's a problem with religion in many, many states uh, and, and I think we should start addressing that because it 's definitely uh, hurting women on uh, the ground. I just just wanted to mention that and and thank you mm. for posing the, the question and I think you, you are right I, I do I really like your question for example internet just let 's take internet in Africa. Internet in Africa is becoming you know a violence thing now, so you have young women in Senegal who are Muslim and and the husbands now they can block their mobile phones they can stop uh, you know, their credits. They can actually stop them using Facebook. So I was uh, organizing an event the other day uh, in Tanzania, and a young lady came and see me and said, "You know, my dad don't want me to use mobile phone. Actually, just saw very quickly your event on Facebook. That's why I came." And I said, "Why did you came?" And said, "You know, I just I just want to be free. I just I just like what you do, and I want to come and see you. But I have to go very very quickly now. I can't stay. And uh, please don't tell anybody I was here." And this is like a 20, 30 years old woman. And so I think that we need to also, you are right, I do agree on policies, changing policies on the ground. And I think that's what I am IMDACO is trying to do, making sure we change policies on the ground, but also make sure that when we talk about internet for all, everybody wants people to get internet in in, in emerging countries, but we're not thinking about the consequences and, and what's going to happen in the future. So if that young woman can't can have access to the internet or can't have access to her mobile phone, or she's getting married and she can't talk to her friends because she doesn't have a credit and her husband is using violence you know, I think we need to start thinking about that. I've seen exactly what you said in a in, in couple of places in Africa, and I'm worried that uh, we want them to have access to the internet, have access to mobile phones, but we're not thinking about the violence that you know, that could bring. Irene?
0: Yes.
3: Um, when I, I fully agree with you that uh, sexual and gender-based violence is a global problem. It's not uh, trapped in any particular uh, part of the world. However, there are some dark forces. In crum- Let me put it this way. In crumbling states, it's much harder for institutions or for strategies to be developed to address them than in, in, in strongest uh, states. Um, now, what uh, I, wanted, I think you have a great question there about whether there should be systemic changes or whether there should be individual focus. Oh, obviously, the answer is both, because you need a t- top-down, yeah. bottom-up Uh, strategy to address these situations. And I'll give you one very clear, live example from my own country, Bangladesh. I sit on the board of an organization called BRAC. You might have heard about it. a Large microcredit organization, development organization in Bangladesh. And of course, it provides microfinance to women, large, almost entirely to women. And when they recently did an evaluation, they found that what was happening is that women were earning money, they were increasing their income, but because the laws in Bangladesh are still Islamic laws for Muslim women, the inheritance laws have not been changed. The property, so the women could not inherit property. That was actually a barrier to their progress. They were earning income, but they could not pass it on to their daughters. So you needed to, the individual improvement and the institutional or systemic changes have to go hand in hand because at one point, uh, you know, individuals can only progress so far if they are not in an enabling environment created by law and society and, and the state. So that's, that's, I think, a major barrier when it comes to women, and that's why I started with laws and institutions, as well as empowerment. You, you, need, to, you, know, you need to have all the pieces of a puzzle together, and that's the challenge in, in dealing with change, as you know. Uh, in terms of uh, religion, yes, And I think there again, it's a global problem. The Catholic Church, uh, for example, uh, holding back progress in in some countries, in the Philippines, for example. Mm. We know that the law on reproductive uh, health uh, was blocked by the Catholic Church for for ages. And it is this president who has certain rather unsavory policies as well, actually unblocked uh, the implementation of that law now. Uh, in the Philippines. So there is the Catholic Church. But we have seen the same thing happen in many countries in the name of Islam, uh, where uh, women's rights have been curtailed. And the argument that I always use is that when it comes, uh, many countries that are Muslim-majority countries applying the Sharia law will always say, well, we can't address these issues uh, or change, uh, uh, improve the rights of women because the Sharia law does not allow it. Yet those same governments never say that the Sharia law which forbids, uh, as you know, uh, interest uh, on on financial loans, they never say we can't participate in the international financial system (laughs) because of Sharia. So you you can see there how patriarchy comes Mm -hmm. in together with religion and other factors uh, to uh, block women's progress.
0: Um, that's yeah I think it's the fusion of religion and politics it's sort of the manipulation of religion by political forces to then achieve more a more conservative society in that way Um, just going to Charlotte and then to Greta we're running short of time sadly but um, I think I'd really like to hear from you both um, specifically on quotas on the question of quotas I mean it's something that we think about you know in every sector should it should they be universally unilaterally imposed by government legislation should it be sector specific should they be voluntary as it is in the UK. We've had a, a 25% quota for women on boards, which has meant that women have ended up in non-executive roles and it's all become quite tokenistic, but it's still done some you know, better having that than nothing. So um, I'd be really interested to get your thoughts on that.
2: I actually want to start on the religion and culture question uh, and pick up where Irene, where you just left out. I think if you really look at most of the fundamentalist religious movements, they are really political movements using religion. Mm. And I, I think that's a much better way to talk yes. about this question, which is how political movements use religion in the name of their own ideologies. And I think this is true with Catholic. It's true with the Hindu in India. It's true you know, across all the religions, we have moments of political use of religion. And it's helpful for me to think about the fact that religions are also rooted in a patriarchal cultural moment in most cases. So many of the things that we call religious are really just the culture at the moment that that religion evolved. And so for me, I think there's two issues here. One is how we separate religion as a, a thing in itself from its political manipulation. And the second is the movement of women and men within every religion to reinterpret from a feminist perspective, what those religions mean. And and I think it's a both end. I know some people argue whether it should be secular separation in church and state, which I think is important, but it's also about how those religions are also being reinterpreted and the movement from within and the separation of the cultural moment of a religion from its political use. So I, I will just uh, end. And let uh, going to take the question of, of quotas. I just want to say one thing about quotas, which is, uh, we have an anathema to quotas in the U.S., which I think is ridiculous. Because if they look at the facts from the Interparliamentary Union and others, where women have advanced politically in almost all parts of the world, there is some form of affirmative action or quotas or measures. And I think it is important to break the resistance to that. That. We think that somehow thousands of years of socialization shouldn't be countered by a little bit of thinking about how to make measures to bring people who have been excluded women and other groups for so long into the political systems. And, but the really important question is how you work with the women who are in there for the kind of changes you want to make. It's not just putting numbers of women there. It's about how that changes the way we see representation and the fact that you don't have democracy and representation if so many people, women uh, and others, are excluded from that process. So I am very much opposed to the way the US thinks about quotas, which is very antiquated, um, and think that we could learn from many parts of the world for how to use them creatively, not as the answer, but as a tool, as you said. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Charlotte. Um, and uh, we are we're very short on time, so Greta, it'd be really good to get a uh, one, if you can, one sentence response on quotas.
4: Okay. So um, ultimately, I, I think that it's really important about targets. I think that um, quotas, again, um, it's always different contexts in any country, and ultimately, you have to have the buy-in from the leadership. Um, and support because if you do have um, women that are there, if the if the organization is not bought into their um, involvement um, and their leadership and, and supportive in, and their involvement, then they can still find ways to exclude them. So it needs to be not just about quotas and placing women there, but looking at how any organization or country really looks at they 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 um, set a target a goal a message and provide the support that enables women to get there. So Mm -hmm. that would be kind of my end comment on that is that I think that that setting strong targets to be measured are important across um, any uh, organization, but I do think that proactive measures need to be taken, as Charlotte was uh, mentioning, because if you just let it be um, for people to rise up because of their hard work and achievements, we'll we'll never get there. So.
0: Great, thank you very, very much. And uh, that brings our discussion to a close. I think it's been uh, extremely productive and definitely helped refocus uh, the sort of feminist debate on the global issues that really, really matter. So thank you to our brilliant panel and thank you all for coming today as well and for your questions. It's been a real pleasure, thank you. Uh, There will be a reception. Yes, there will be a reception with wine. Sorry, I nearly forgot the most important part. (laughs) Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes.